who we listen to matters. Who we listen to matters. I don't know if you've ever been given bad advice. I have certainly been given bad advice. My all-time favourite piece of bad but trivial advice was that I should change my name when I became a lawyer, or at least how I refer to myself. I was told that referring to myself as Phil Fellows would jeopardise my career because it sounded too sort of flippant, and uh, that I should refer to myself as Philip Fellows. I, I tried it for about three days, but every time I, uh, every time, feel free to come in, every time I uh, found that uh, someone was referring to me as Philip, I either imagined that they were angry with me, uh, or that they were talking to someone else. Uh, so I lasted all of four days before I, I said to my friend and supervisor, Rupert, Rupert, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think I'm going to take my chances with Phil. Uh, who we listen to matters. Uh, perhaps in, in, in every area of life, but in religious and spiritual matters, perhaps more than any other. I, I went to my least favorite resource, which is Wikipedia, uh, to find out some statistics on this. They, they, uh, if you Google uh, new religious movements and then look them up on Wikipedia and do a count of just the new religious movements listed there from the 20th century, it comes to hundreds and thousands in the last couple of centuries of new religious movements. Everybody with something else to say about how life should be lived, how God should be followed. The website sermoncentral.com offers 160,000 sermons for download from preachers both living and dead. 160,000. Thank you so much for coming to hear me. It encourages me enormously. 160,000 sermons from preachers of every persuasion. I don't think there is a test on there for what they're teaching. I think they just get uploaded. My point is this, discerning who we listen to is important. Discerning who we listen to is important. And we're going to read uh, from several bits of the Bible in a moment. Uh, I've included readings from the Old Testament. They're the writings that came before Jesus, uh, the Jewish Bible. Uh, They set the scene for Jesus and point to what he's going to say. And then I've included some readings from Jesus himself and his life which is what we find in the Gospels, and then some writings from uh, his earliest followers, which is what we find in the rest of the New Testament, reflecting on what it means in practice to live out what Jesus taught and to live in light of what he did. So we're going to read from all four of those uh, areas, or five uh, readings. Uh, So I'm going to turn first of all to Matthew 7. If you've got a Bible, open up uh, to Matthew 7. If you're looking at the ones at the back, you're looking at page 972. You don't need to worry about following every other reading in the Bible, but I'd encourage you to keep your page open at this one. I'll put it on the screen as well for those who find Bibles difficult to handle. It's the word of God. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, by their fruit, sorry, you will recognize them. Keep your hand there, and uh, that's the passage I'm going to be looking at in detail as we come to study God's words. But I, I'm going to read to you for, as well from Jeremiah in chapter 8, and then Heather's going to come up and read uh, another reading from Matthew. This is Jeremiah chapter 8 and verses 8 to 12. Jeremiah is speaking to Israel uh, a, a few hundred years before Jesus was born. How can you say, we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, they are all greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will, be fo- they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. What Jeremiah is talking about is the invasion of Israel that was coming when Babylon invaded Israel and took the people into exile. Because of the way that they'd handled the poor and oppressed those who needed help. And Heather's going to come and read to us from Matthew. This is Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 12, and verse 33 to 37. Here you go. If you read this one, it's the same as the other one on the screen. Make a, good, make, a, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Thank you. And then uh, I'm going to read from Acts. This is St. Paul. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 18. And then I'm going to read from 28 to 31. Paul says a lot of stuff here, and we're only interested in the last bit. This is the story of the early church. This is the story of how Paul put into practice what Jesus had taught. It says, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, and then I'm going to skip down. He says lots to them. I'm going to skip down to what he says in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from, um, 
from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Uh, Yeah, that's the bit I wanted to read. And then finally we're going to read from 2 Peter 2 and verses 1 to 3. And this is St. Peter talking to the uh, church, one of the, uh, a group of churches that he pastored, and warning them about what will happen. But there were also false prophets among the people, he's talking about in ancient Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Swift destruction, uh, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Amen. This is the word of God. I always give a, a summary of what it is that I think. Uh, God is wanting to say to us each week and this week it's this true teachers produce true teaching true teachers produce true teaching and their lives look like Jesus's never know whether there should be an extra s on the end of Jesus's but I've gone for that here true teachers produce true teaching and their lives look like Jesus's true teachers produce true teaching and their lives look like Jesus's The readings that we uh, just heard are, in some ways, sobering. They're intended to be sobering. As we read them through, I think it's helpful to remember a couple of things. I'm going to get into unpacking what Jesus is talking about in a moment. But I want to set it in in its proper context. Which is, first of all, Jesus is talking in a sermon in which he has already explained that the kingdom of God belongs to those who come and seek grace from God. Everything Jesus says here is framed by his first thing, by the first thing he says, which is blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, everything here is framed by the idea that God so loved us that he gave himself for us. And all he requires of us is to come to him and say, Lord, help. I know I need mercy. So that's the first thing I want to say is that in everything I say, please don't lose sight of the fact that that Jesus, everything Jesus teaches is framed by that understanding of grace and God's love for people. And actually, what he's saying here is, is rooted in that love that God has for his people and his desire that he saved them. The second thing I think it's helpful to remember is that most of those readings were not directed, the warnings in the readings were not directed at individual Christians in the church. They were warnings about teachers, So most of the things that that Jesus and Jeremiah and Peter were warning about were not warning of individual Christians who go astray, but teachers who go astray. 
And that's helpful to remember as well as we come to think through what this is talking about. What then is it that Jesus is saying to the church? Well, because God loves the church so much, because Jesus loves you so much and me so much, he warns us that not everyone who comes to teach, not everyone who comes to tell us the way of Christ or the way to life is going to be true, is going to be someone who should be listened to. We have to be discerning, Jesus is saying. We have to work out who we listen to, who we follow. There are many religious teachers within the Christian church, both online and on paper. That's a simple statement of fact. The Christian publishing industry, the evangelical Christian publishing industry, so I'm not including in that uh, Catholic and Orthodox and the other wings of the church, just the evangelical one is worth over $500 million every year. People trying to teach. And Jesus is saying... I'm going to be brutally realistic for you. Some of these people are misleading you. Some of these people should not be listened to. When we are trying to work out how we should live, there are teachers, religious teachers and secular teachers we should follow, and there are religious and secular teachers we should not follow. In other words, Jesus says, there are wolves, and we live in denial if we don't imagine that to be true. There are wolves in the world. There are wolves in the church. There are wolves. More than that, not only are there wolves, there you go, there you go. Thought I'd lighten the mood. More than that, wolves are dangerous. Wolves are dangerous. Jesus picks this picture deliberately. Over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God's people uh, are pictured as sheep. People who are cared for by shepherds. Wolves are dangerous to sheep, to say the least. That that one on the right is uh, perfect. Has anybody seen Steve? (laughs) Right, right. Wolves are dangerous for sheep. False teachers in the church, people who are teaching the way of Jesus wrongly, I don't just mean making a mistake, I mean in malice, teaching the wrong thing, are dangerous to people. False teachers in the world are dangerous to people. Now this is true in religious circles and outside religious circles. I'll go off on a tangent for a minute, as is my want. Yesterday at dinner time, uh, Ben and Sam were uh, talking to me about uh, the Russian Revolution. We were talking about the Russian Revolution. They were saying, oh, what was this thing that happened? Because we were talking about czars and where czars went and all the rest of it. And uh, I was describing the Russian Revolution and what happened in Russia when the uh, Bolsheviks came to power and... We talked it through, and they were fascinated. You know, boys fascinated by history. It's not a new story. And we were getting through it, and I was teaching them, and they were really interested about this ideology, this kind of uh, militant, atheistic communism that had taken over a country and had led to the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. I mean, hundreds of millions worldwide. Died because people listened to the wrong people. 
Where is the, where is the roots of that ideology? It's in listening to the wrong prophet, to the wrong teacher. Now, I'm not making a comment about the British political scene, left or right. I have never projected my political views onto anybody else and I can see good Christian arguments why people I always say this there are good Christian arguments for voting for Labour the Lib Dems and the Tories please don't hear me say, making a comment about who, who you should vote for if you think you've heard me making a comment about who you should vote for on any political issue you've misheard me because I didn't say it with that said this ideology that resulted in the death of hundreds of millions of people was the result of listening to the wrong prophet Marxism, Leninism was wicked and people should never have listened to it. And if they hadn't listened to it, millions of lives would have been saved. Or what about on the extreme right? Right? Friedrich Nietzsche and his uh, political and philosophical writings in the 19th century were false. They were the wrong things. And when people listened to them and they took ideas about how the strong should dominate the weak, the result was the wickedness of Nazism and the Holocaust. False prophets are dangerous. They are dangerous. Now, I've given two extreme examples from politics, but in the church, false prophets can be just as dangerous. They destroy people's lives. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah speaks about the priests and the prophets who are only interested in gaining money. what we call a profit warning. Thank you. I'm here, I'm here all week. <laughs> Don't groan. Don't groan. That's just, it's just discouraging. That's not love. <laughs> he warns about priests and prophets who are only out for their own gain. What do they say to the people? They say, peace. Don't worry about the way you're treating these poor people. Just give me some money and you will have peace. You will be rich, you will be prosperous. As long as I am rich and prosperous, don't worry about them. No, these people haven't gone away. They're in the church today. Makes me furious. Few things provoke me to anger more easily than this. Where Heather and I used to live in East London, in that time before the Olympics, were the third poorest borough in the country and people would come and they would proclaim a gospel that led to the riches of the preacher at the expense of the poor. Few, few things make me angrier. These people haven't gone anywhere. You know, it's not fashionable to say, in some ways it is fashionable, it's, it's kind of, Two-edged sword, this one. On the one hand, we live in an age in which we're very quick to denounce other people as dangerous without much warning, right? Without much give and go. You think, well, the difference between person A and person B is so small on the grand scheme of things that you would never guess that that was the case from the way they talk about each other. And yet, on the other hand, we like to tell ourselves that we shouldn't ever describe anyone's views as dangerous. Particularly within the church. In theological circles, to describe someone as a heretic, which is a technical term, meaning they're teaching something about Jesus that's untrue and incorrect, is a big no-no. Terribly judgmental. And yet I'm quite happy to say there are plenty of people teaching in churches in the UK at the moment who are, according to the technical term, heretics. They teach something about Jesus Christ which is not true. Some of them are bishops. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. 
It's dangerous because it strips people of dignity and leads them to lives of poverty and oppression. It's dangerous because it it endangers people's eternal lives with God. If you teach people that it's fine to mistreat the poor, and this isn't so much of a problem in the UK, but in America certainly, you teach people it's fine to mistreat the poor because riches are a sign of God's blessing, and they go and mistreat the poor, they're going to have to answer to God for that. It's dangerous. There are wolves, and wolves are dangerous to sheep. What happened to Steve? It doesn't mean that anyone's beyond redemption. It doesn't mean we don't need to show love to everyone. Show love to everyone. Be gracious to everyone. I'm not going to name any teacher this morning, but there are teachers who I would publicly denounce if they came into this church. They would not be allowed to preach. And yet if they came in hungry and thirsty, I would feed them and give them water. I would pray for them to encounter the grace of God. If they were naked, I would clothe them. If they were homeless, I would house them. I love them because Jesus loves them. But they're not going anywhere near my sheep. They look like sheep. This is the classic one, so we go back. They look like sheep. This is unsettling. The wolves look like sheep. Why does Jesus say that? Well, you can't trust appearances. We can't trust appearances. Nor can we trust that someone is okay because they're part of our tribe. This is a big one. We live in a more tribal age than any period in this country, since certainly since the 1980s. They're one of us, so we never say anything negative about them because ultimately they're one of us and they're not one of them. And we want to beat them, so we'll cut this person a lot of slack. Or we don't ask questions about what they're doing or what they're teaching because they're one of us. Well, no, the wolf looks like a sheep, right? The flock of sheep look at the wolf and they think, oh, he's one of us. Being one of us is not a good guide to whether or not someone is teaching well. There will be a time, uh, there will be a time when Heather and I are no longer here. May that day never come. And the members of this church will be in charge under the guidance of hopefully elders and deacons and with the help of outsiders in finding new shepherd. And let me be honest with you, friends. You shouldn't go and look and say, I just want somebody who's accredited by this church or this organization. Don't look and say they look like a sheep. It's not a good guide. It's not a good guide. We can't rely on the idea that teachers who look good and dress well or are successful are therefore right. Lots of people listening to them and having lots of money does not make someone right. It never has and it never will. Indeed, some of the richest people in church history have been the most dangerous. There are preachers in America at the moment who have Learjets, several of them. That does not mean that you should listen to them. Indeed, amassing lots and lots of money and lots and lots of power is a reason to be suspicious of someone who's in church leadership. How people handle money is a really good guide 
when Martin Luther uh, instigated the Reformation in 1517, he wasn't talking about this, but one of the things he should have been asking a question about is why are they building the Vatican at all? Why are these people with amassing enormous amounts of wealth and power centrally for themselves and purporting to be shepherds of the flock? They shouldn't be. Now, don't get me wrong, people have, different people have different amounts of money they need, right? The fact that someone wears a nice suit might mean that they're going to minister in the city and that they need to go and work in a place where everybody else wears nice suits, they need a nice suit to work. Fine, who cares? It might be that someone's ministry takes them all around the world and it's cheaper to own a plane than to keep renting plane tickets. Fine. I'm not making judgment about any individual. What I am saying is don't be seduced by the fact that they look good or attractive. Indeed, it might be an indicator that this person has made their money either teaching people they should give them money or that they make their money going around teaching people what they want to hear. What Jesus teaches people is not what most people want to hear. Okay, I'm sorry to disabuse you. If you think that Jesus' teaching is going to be attractive to everyone, go up to someone and say, Hi, Janice. Really sorry if your name's Janice. I, I didn't know. Hi, Janice. I know that woman's being mean to you. You should unconditionally forgive her, love her, and offer her something. You shouldn't stop gossiping about her with her friends. Go and find out whether Janice thinks that's really good news. It's not, right? People don't like the teaching of Jesus. They like it in principle. Sounds great. Forgive everyone. Great. Show mercy to everyone. Great. Give away your money. Great. You mean me? You mean my money? Not so great. Right? The teaching of Jesus is not always attractive. It just happens to be true and life-giving and holy and the best thing that's ever happened to the world. Transform the world for everybody from uh, ethnic minorities to women to the poor to societies transformed by this teaching. But people still don't like it. Forgive him. Embrace her. But he's a fascist. She's a leper. He was horrible to me. <laughs> You can get much further. You can make much more money saying to people, don't worry about it. God's going to bless you. Just touch my jacket. Pay me a five pounds. I'll bless this hanky and your house will be blessed. Don't worry about how you behave. You want to make money? That's how to make money. I'll give, you that. I'll give you that for nothing. Make shed loads of money doing it. Start blessing hankies and selling them. So then what should we do then? Wolves exist and are dangerous. Wolves look like sheep. How then do you tell whether someone is a sheep or a wolf? Well, Jesus changes his metaphor here. And he uses instead the picture of trees. He says, the way that you tell whether one tr- what, what a tree is, is that you look what comes from it. You look at the leaves. You look at the fruit. When you've got two trees in a, in a pot and they've just been planted, you can't tell which is which. That's why they put labels in them at garden centres, right? You can't tell. You wait until the tree grows. You start to see what the growth looks like. You start to see what comes from it. That's how you tell if you've got an apple tree or a pear tree. The fruit looks different. Jesus says, look at the fruit. First of all, look at the fruit of their teaching. Do they accurately describe who Jesus is and what he taught? Do they accurately describe who Jesus is and what they taught? Teaching. There are certain basic things that if someone gets wrong, they shouldn't be allowed to teach in a church, right? That's, it's in the creed. 
You know, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Right? It's a technical document. It's the 12 things that the church fathers, over thousands of years, read the Bible and said, you know what, this is the minimum. If you can't teach this, you're not a Christian teacher. What do they teach about Jesus? They're teaching, does it just tickle our ears? That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? That comes from uh, the epistles. They're like having, people are like having their ears tickled. You ever have a dog? If you get a dog, you, they love to have their ears tickled. You, know, you just rub them behind their ears. Their legs go, <laughs> you know, tail wagging all over the place. They love it. They love having their ears tickled. And the uh, early Christians used this, this, this language. They said people will love having their ears tickled. They love having their ears tickled. If someone's teaching comes along and it's ear-tickling, be very, very suspicious. That's not to say that everyone should go away from every sermon feeling like, oh, I've been really challenged today. Sometimes we don't. God isn't speaking to us that week about anything in particular. But if over a period of time, the teaching never calls you to repent, if it's always about what God can do for you rather than the way that God requires us to behave with others then it's not good teaching. The proper response to what Jesus has done is to repent and believe. Hopefully, I've now preached 18 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. I've got two more to go. At some point during these sermons, it should have occurred to one of us that this is quite a difficult life to live. If it hasn't occurred to you that it's difficult to live the way Jesus says, impossible without his Holy Spirit, you haven't been listening. So if somebody never challenges you, their teaching never challenges you, then it's not good teaching. Here's a simple uh, mnemonic. Not mnemonic, that's the wrong word. Uh, Aphorism, that's a better word. If it's old, it's usually gold. If it's new, it's usually not. If the teaching is old, it's usually gold. If it's new, it's usually not. What I mean by that is not that you should listen to crackly recordings rather than new ones. But there's nothing in what I'm saying which is anything different from what you would have heard John Wesley saying or John Chrysostom saying in the year 300 or St. Paul saying in the early church. Literally, the most insulting thing you can say to me, apart from, Phil, you're bulging out of that waistcoat, I think it's time to go on a diet. That's the most insulting thing you can say. The second most insulting thing you could say to me, anyone could say to me, is, Phil, what an innovative doctrine. You've really come up with something new there. I don't want to say anything new about Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, he has to be applied to, to, but if, to a new situation. But if someone's coming along and saying, the church misunderstood who Jesus was for 2,000 years, and I've got it right, the chances are, no, you haven't. If it's old, it's gold. If people have been preaching it for 1,800 years, chances are it's right. And that you're wrong if you disagree. Now, obviously, there are things need to be weighed and changed, and how does you know, St. Paul's teaching relate to the society we're in now? But if someone comes along and says, do you know what? Even the people who first followed Jesus didn't understand what Jesus meant, and this happens all the time. This is a liberal, a criti- I've critiqued conservative Christianity, and now I'm going to critique liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity is the extraordinary claim that people misunderstood Jesus for 2,000 years, including those who lived with him and walked with him, but we know better. I'm sorry, it's the emperor's new clothes. No, you don't. No, you don't. St. Paul knew better than you. I'm sorry. The people who followed St. Paul knew better what he meant than you do. I'm sorry. 
I know that's embarrassing. But sometimes we have to have the humility to say, actually, we submit to what people knew in the past. If it's old, it's probably gold. If it's new, it's probably not. Second, what do their lives look like? What do their lives look like? So here's a, here's a great one. This is, I've, I've had a go at the liberals. Now I'll have a go at the conservatives. If the heresy of liberal Christianity is that we can change the teachings of the scripture and the Christian church because we don't like them anymore because we think we know better, because we're modern people and after all, and it normally is this way, after all we are white westerners and we are modern white westerners so therefore we must know more than anybody who's ever lived and anybody in the world at the moment and we can't understand why everyone thinks that's arrogant and a problem. If that's the liberal Christian heresy, the conservative Christian heresy is to say, we totally understand what the church has always believed. We affirm it. We think it's life-giving, but we don't have to live by it. You don't really want me to welcome the sinners. You don't really want me to love those who are unlovely. You don't really want me to give away my money. I'll teach the right doctrines, but my life will not live it out. Jesus has no time for that at all. Well, how do they live? Do they themselves live a life of service, humility, grace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? When we look at the... I'm not talking now about anyone outside the church. But when we look at Christian leaders, there should be a measurable, or at least discernible, matching between the way they live and the truth they proclaim. If there is a real problem with how they live, then we shouldn't be listening to what they say. Now, let's not say that there are blind spots I have that I'm not aware of, right? And I'm not saying that anybody is perfect. They're not perfect. But if someone's consistently living in a way that's different from the way they teach or the way that Jesus teaches, then we should be really sceptical about how they, whether we listen to what they teach. By your fruit, by the fruit, you will know them. So, for example, there is a, a theologian from the 20th century who none of you, I imagine, will have read, and hallelujah, praise God for that. Uh, it goes by the name Paul Tillich. He's dead now, so I can um, talk about him by name. Um, I would, if I met any of you reading a Paul Tillich book, we would have an interesting conversation for half an hour, and I'd encourage you to throw it away. Partly because his, philo- his philosophical theology was, I think, nonsense. Partly because every time he went to a new city or town, he went and found the red light district and started hanging out with the prostitutes. Not in order to bring them to Christ. Now I say this lightly, but I say it with seriousness. If there is a massive gap between the way someone lives and what they're teaching and what the scriptures teach, then actually they don't have any right to teach others doesn't mean they should be condemned or they should be thrown out of the church or they should not be treated with love and respect. If Paul Tillich were alive today and he came into this church I would, and he was hungry, I would feed him. If he was thirsty, I would give him something to drink. If he was naked, I'd clothe him. If he was homeless, we would house him. If he was in need of money, we would lend him money. But there is not a, a hope that I would be living in my pulpit. So what's the effect on other people? There's one Christian teacher who's not dead, 
Um, so I'm not going to name him, but I, every time you meet somebody who reads his blogs or listens to his talks, you find somebody, and I can predict it, who is the most judgmental, arrogant person you could hope to come across. He somehow takes lovely people and turns them into denouncing machines. They denounce everybody who's within a hair's breadth of their doctrine, right? He saw this for long enough, I said, you know what, we're not going to have anything to do with that. The fruit is that people who are judgmental. Now, this kind of discernment requires patience. We're going to finish here. How then should we respond? I'm going to offer five thoughts. Here they are. First of all, come to Jesus. If you have not yet given your life to Jesus, then let me tell you, you are missing out on the best shepherd you've ever heard of. The one whose teaching will heal your soul, whose spirit will give life to your mind and your flesh, whose word can keep you beyond death, come to Jesus. The word, if you are not yet a Christian this morning, from this sermon is repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be brought into a new flock with a new shepherd who's defeated the wolves, who's overcome the devil on your behalf and will do it for you. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For those who are already Christians... Commit to being in a church. There is safety in numbers. Lone sheep are easier to pick off for wolves. Sheep in herds. Is that, do you have a herd of sheep? Is it a herd? It's not a pack, is it? Flock. Flock. Thank you. I ought to know that. Flock of sheep. Sheep in flocks are easy to protect. Get in a flock. Join a life group. Third, get good food. Read the Bible. thing is, the more you eat the grass, the more you notice that there's one sheep who's not eating the grass. When you see a sheep who's not eating the grass, and you think, eat the grass, you think, I've got a really good diet on this grass. This is the best grass over here. He's pretending to eat grass over there, but that's mud. Maybe he's a wolf. Because I knew the grass. Read the Bible. Get good shepherds. Pastors and elders are part of the leadership of church in order to defend the people from the church, in the church from wolves. People talk a lot of nonsense about the roles of elders and pastors. They're not the only leaders of the church. They're one of a number of leaders of the church, but they are the ones who are there to shoot the wolves. That's the job of elders and pastors. To defend the church against attack from the outside and against attack from the inside. That's my job. My job is to shoot the wolves. At time, we're going to ask if we could appoint more elders in the church so that actually there's more people who are helping me to shoot the wolves, to feed the sheep and shoot the wolves, feed the sheep and shoot the wolves. If you're a guest this morning and you're not regularly a member of a church, get into a church with a pastoral leadership you trust. Because let me tell you, there is no way you're going to be able to read or understand everything all these teachers are saying. You need someone who can do it. My job is to know what I'm talking about and to defend people who don't. Because you have real jobs and real lives. So you pay me to do it. To shoot the wolves. Fifth, remain loving and compassionate. Discern, don't judge. True teachers produce true teaching and their lives look like Jesus's. And we're going to take a moment now. We're just going to be quiet. I'm going to leave some space for the Holy Spirit to come and minister. And then we're going to encourage people to come up and take communion. If you're a guest or you've not been uh, in this church before, then if you know and follow Jesus, then we are very happy to give communion to you. We're not closed in that way. 
Just take some time and ask God if it's right with your heart. Let's just pray. Come, Holy Spirit. I should say after that, we're going to be singing some songs. If anyone would like prayer, Heather's going to be here to pray with people. So am I. If you want to come and grab us for prayer or grab the person next to you for prayer, please do come up. If you come up at the same time as we're taking communion, no one will know. Let's just be quiet. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Speak to us in Jesus' name.